Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations provided by the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Andra Balarga and I'm a TNC member. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jack Andrews, Senior Cardiology Registrar at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. Dr. Andrews is specialising in interventional cardiology. Welcome Dr. Andrews and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much Andra for having me on. As we know, coronary heart disease is an important cause of death and chest pain remains the most common presentation to the emergency department. This is an area of continuous evaluation and research to improve the assessment, risk stratification, the management and also the prognosis of patients who have an acute coronary syndrome. Today, we're going to cover some of these areas and discuss the recent updates of the national and international guidelines on acute coronary syndrome. So just I'm going to start with a very open question. Dr. Andrews, and if you can give us an overview of the key updates from the recently updated NICE guidelines on acute coronary syndrome and the ESC guidelines from uh, the end of last year, what are the main changes that affect clinical practice that we should all be aware of? Yeah, no, thanks, Anda, for the introduction. So yes, the the ESC guidelines were changed or updated, sorry, in August 2020 in the NICE guidelines, shortly after that in November 2020. you know, the main changes which are, are similar to both, one of the main changes is really the stance on pre-treatment with P2Y12 inhibitors. Um, P2Y12 inhibitors are drugs such as clopidogrel, prasugrel, and ticagrelor. Pre-treatment basically means loading the patient with these drugs in addition to aspirin before the coronary anatomy is known. Um, and this is remembering this is out with STEMI. Um, so the re- recommendation is now to give aspirin and an antithrombin drug only, so heparin or fondaparinux, without a P2Y12 inhibitor until the coronary anatomy is known. The relevant studies have shown no benefit with respect to mortality and stent thrombosis of pretreatment with a P2Y12 plus aspirin versus aspirin alone, but higher bleeding rates with pretreatment. And this is why the change has come about. And I think if we think about it, it does really make sense as the benefit of a P2Y12 is largely to prevent stent thrombosis and within NSTEMI, stents are deployed less frequently than in STEMI because the pathophysiology isn't always plaque rupture and thrombotic coronary occlusion. NSTEMI patients also tend to be older, more comorbid, and their bleeding risk is generally higher than those with STEMI. If we then look at how we stratify whether invasive management of NSTEMI is going to be carried out, really NICE recommends calculation of the six-month mortality using risk scores, and the most commonly used risk score is that GRACE score. Those with high-risk clinical features, so they might be hemodynamically unstable or have ECG changes which are dynamic, they clearly progress quickly to angiography, and that's suggested to be immediate for those changes or within 24 hours. But those with a six-month mortality estimate of less than 3%, which could be calculated using the GRACE score, nice say can safely be treated medically without angiography, um, or at least it could be considered at a later date. Angiography, however, is recommended in those with a six-month mortality estimate of over 3%. And this is really due to a mortality benefit, which is seen up to two years. If the patient then progresses to angiography, and once the coronary anatomy is known, the antiplatelet regime is now recommended, this is from NICE, is now recommended to be aspirin plus prasugrel or ticagrelor in those undergoing PCI after NSTEMI. So NSTEMI plus a stent is now aspirin and prasugrel or ticagrelor. Clopidogrel is not routinely recommended. Those managed medically may just receive aspirin if they have a high bleeding risk, but if not, then ticagrelor or clopidogrel can be used. 
So NSTEMI without angiography, without stent, tachycardial or clopidogrel is the option for P2Y12 inhibition, not prasugrel. It does however get complicated if they're on a NOAC, and I know we might come to that later, but briefly, if they are on a NOAC, then clopidogrel is the P2Y12 choice as the bleeding risk is lower. It's worth remembering that prasugrel sh probably shouldn't be given to those with a previous stroke and the over 75s due to bleeding concerns, and tachycardial can cause shortness of breath in a not insignificant proportion of patients requiring cessation of therapy or switching to a different P2Y12. And in those with a high ischemic risk, the duration of Dual therapy is currently suggested on both guidelines around 12 months, but this can be tailored to the individual dependent on their ischemic and bleeding risk. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Thank you. Thanks for that overview. I think it's quite important, as you said, we're going to cover the assessment of the thrombotic versus bleeding risk a bit later. But just to confirm, so you said acute coronary syndrome, STEMI, patients will get a P2Y12 inhibitor in aspirin yes. and aspirin. Uh, whilst NSTEMI uh, withhold P2Y12 inhibitor, and that's the, the main change. Yeah, withhold if until we know the coronary anatomy. Um, we can actually still give pretreatment. They don't say a complete blanket ban. We can give it if we think that we're definitely going to perform angiography, but the general advice is until we know what the coronary anatomy is, um, it's safer to withhold P2Y12 inhibition. Thank you. So before we talk about risk assessment and also uh, management, uh, just a bit about the diagnosis and the umbrella term of acute coronary syndrome. So when we consider an acute coronary syndrome, we discuss patients with ST elevation myocardial infarction, non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, and also unstable angina. Mm -hmm. So since the introduction of high sensitivity cardiac troponin, the term unstable angina is less often encountered. And when and how do we consider a diagnosis of unstable angina? in now the year of high sensitivity cardiac troponin. What do you consider in clinical practice? Yeah, I think this is a, a fantastic question and I completely agree with you. We're seeing it less and less. And, you know, the term clinically has now almost become obsolete. It's very rare that we'd see a patient with true unstable symptoms with a troponin um, lower than the diagnostic threshold. The assays, as you say, are now so sensitive, it's, it's very rare to see, to see these patients um, with troponins within the normal reference range, and certainly even rare if they had ECG changes to go with that. Um, but having said that, however, we still must not rely on a normal troponin, in inverted commas. Um, it's still important to look at how that's trending in these patients, so it's important to check a second, um, a second value if it is below the diagnostic threshold to see what the delta change is. And also we need to remember, you know, back to basics, we need to take a good history from the patient. And if they do have a convincing clinical history, if it's typical, they've got risk factors. I mean, I think it's acceptable to say, and it's definitely our practice, that we would still admit these patients if we think that they've got true unstable symptoms, even if the troponin is lower than the diagnostic threshold. Yeah, I think, I think that's currently our practice. And just to, to continue from that, you talked about a nice aspect on just wanted to ask you what, what aspects in the history and assessment help you to differentiate between the different causes of an elevated troponin in patients? Yeah, yeah. so um, basically there's many, many causes. It's a very sensitive test and as a result, it's not so specific anymore. But basically, if, if I'm thinking about cardiac and ischemic causes of an elevated troponin, um, I really want to focus in on the history um, so things like central constricting 
chest pain, which is worse than exertion, eased at rest, radiating to the left arm. Um, very important if the, the symptoms are crescendo in nature, whether they've been getting worse over the last few weeks, if there's a history of antecedent angina, and of course the presence of risk factors are very, very important. Um, so things like diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, family history, smoking, all of these things would push you more to a diagnosis of NSTEMI if the troponin was elevated. The ECG is another, you know, great tool that we have. It's, it's, it's quite easy if there's ECG changes in keeping with ischemia. So if they've got ST depression, TB flattening version, established Q waves and the diagnosis is pretty straightforward in the presence of um, a reasonable history and an elevated troponin. And if you're unsure with respect to the ECG, it's, it's important to look back at old ECGs and of course repeat the ECG during the acute admission as ST changes and T wave changes are dynamic if acute. However, you know, as you say, we often see the patient after the troponin result is back. Um, you know, the referral is there's a patient with a positive troponin and some sort of chest pain. Um, so we don't often get the opportunity to take a history first and then check do the tests afterwards. It's often in the reverse manner. This can alter our approach um, with respect to the clinical evaluation as a very high troponin, you know, perhaps in the thousands or even tens of thousands, much more in keeping with a type 1 MI than a borderline value. If the value is borderline, then we must remember to follow our respective diagnostic algorithms, our protocols um, for whichever assay that we use and check another value um, at a different time point to give us an idea as to whether the troponin kinetics are dynamic or static. If they're dynamic, so by that I mean really a rise and a fall, it means something's happened. There's been an acute event. If this couples with the history, then a type 1 MI from a plaque rupture and coronary thrombosis is much more likely. I think if the value of the troponin is relatively static over time, but above the threshold, it implies that there may be a more chronic process responsible for the trope elevation. And there's numerous causes for this, but a you know, common one would be CKD or heart failure. I think, I think problems arise when the history is unconvincing and there's no clear ECG changes. The lack of specificity of the novel high sensitivity troponins means that we see a lot of troponin rises which are not caused by MI. And this is increasingly common, as we mentioned earlier, in patients who are elderly and severely comorbid. But I think a, a kind of common approach might be as follows. Focus on the history. If they've got no chest pain and no ECG changes, but the troponin is elevated, then this is myocardial injury. Look for causes of trope elevation, you know, such as anemia, hypoxia, acute kidney injury. If there are ischemic symptoms and or ECG changes suggestive of ischemia, but, in a, but there's a clear non-coronary cause identified, then this is termed type 2 MI. This is more common in patients with known stable disease, and it's easy to understand if you remember that myocardium extracts more oxygen from the blood than any other organ. So it's very sensitive to changes in blood oxygen and all that affects this. And then if we remember that treatment at this point is aimed at treating the cause, um, but certainly there are certain studies ongoing looking at the potential efficacy of antithrombotic or invasive management in these groups. Great. That's a very helpful overview in the area that still continues to be conundrum. It certainly is. So we'll, we'll move on to, to, to really just concentrate on um, acute coronary syndromes. And we know the role of early revascularization in the management of an ACS. But I was wondering if we can talk a bit, and you touched a bit at the beginning, but just to cover when do you consider medical management of patients with an acute coronary syndrome? What subgroups of patients would these be? Yeah, no, no that's a, a really good question. And, you know, it's important to remember that we know that STEMIs need immediate revascularization. No one's questioning that. That's based on clear survival benefit. But, you know, the evidence of benefit for revasc and NSTEMI is less clear. Uh, this is partly because this is a, 
older, more heterogeneous, heterogeneous group with, with lots of um, comorbid uh, problems. Our standard of care currently for NSTEMIs is invasive angi angiography plus REVAS, which is largely based on the RETA3 study, which was um, performed by Professor Fox or led by Professor Fox in the early 2000s. Um, this was randomizing 1800 NSTEMIs to invasive versus conservative treatment, but one year there was no different in death or MI, but refractory or severe angina was halved in the invasive group. Similar studies have backed these findings up, but still no survival benefit. So this is why our default is invasive angiography, but not everyone gets this. Of course, those with ECG changes, ongoing pain, hemodynamic rhythm and stability will be offered angiography as the benefits outweigh the risks. However, as a general rule, you know, if the patient is low risk, they've got a single episode of chest pain, no ECG changes, they're mobilizing around the ward without pain. It is safe to let them home and bring them back for early outpatient angiography. Um, and a lot of that will be, you know, we can calculate that with calculating the risks, the GRACE score. So we touched on it earlier, GRACE score, six-month mortality, less than 3%. These patients are safe to be discharged. And you can consider um, outpatient angiography if you wish. And this is quite an attractive option currently, as, you know, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic. So the desire to spend as little time as possible in hospital is there. Um, but we, also, we must also remember that, you know, angiography isn't without risk too. Although very uncommon, there is a risk of procedural stroke MI and potential death, which must be considered when we're discussing conservative versus invasive management with the patient. There are, however, you know, there are patients where angiography does genuine, genuinely outweigh the, the risks, do genuinely outweigh the benefits. And these include those with, you know, active bleeding, such as peptic ulcer disease, severe, severe coagulopathy, those that can't or won't take dual antiplatelet therapy. Therefore, they would have a very high risk, almost certain risk of stent thrombosis. Therefore, sudden death is not an ins insignificant risk. These are patients where you just, you know, invasive management is not an option. Also, those with you know, severe CKD, where the risk of dialysis is high, or in those where dialysis is deemed not even a treatment option, should angiography precipitate fulminant renal failure. Um, it's often a knee jerk just to list someone for an angiogram with an NSTEMI, but these are patients we really have to think carefully about what are we trying to achieve? And again, you know, we're trying to reduce primarily um, reduce the patient coming back to be revascularized. Um, and, you know, what is the benefit of reducing angina in a patient who's very sedentary or severely comorbid, who's got a severe life limiting illness um, and in whom angiography poses a significant risk to. So you know, we have to consider the patient um, as a whole and whether you know, whether treating the patient with invasive um, angiography is actually going to help them at all. And just some other considerations which, you know, we should make with all patients is actually, can we do the procedure? Do they have really poor vascular access? Have they had a contrast allergy in the past? In general, radial or femoral access is preferred, but occasionally other sites can be used. You know, it would be worthwhile asking the cardiologist to assess what, what access points we have and whether angiography is even, even possible. Most of the time we can get around this, but you know, occasionally, occasionally it's just not possible if they've got terrible um, renal failure and they've got a fistula and peripheral vascular disease with stents and bypass grafts. Um, all of these things really come down to the decision-making with respect to whether we proceed with angiography or continue with medical therapy. And medical therapy, of course, is a, is a pretty good therapy in NSTEMI as well. Spoken about this, but what about again elderly frail patients and acute coronary syndrome? I, I know there is ongoing trials uh, looking at these 
the patients and uh, vascularization. Yeah. What about any new evidence and what is the practice at present? Yeah, well, again, and another, another really good question is, you know, most of the studies exclude these elderly patients, don't they? They're, they're, they're not exactly. within our evidence base. So there's a real need to find an evidence base for, for what we do with these patients. So we know that the risks associated with angiography increase with the age and frailty. So it's very much a law of diminishing returns unless the indication is clear. Um, most of the recent advances in pharmacological and procedural therapy and MI have been studied, studied in younger patients. So we just don't know at the moment if these benefits apply to older, more comorbid patients. Um, one study which, which certainly we're participating in, but is led by Dr. Vijay Kunadin from Newcastle's called the Senior Rita Trial, which is a replication really of the, the Rita Trial, um, which was run by Professor Fox, but in older patients. So they're randomizing 2,300 patients over 75 with NSTEMI to invasive versus conservative management. Um, and the primary outcome is death and MI at one year. It's still recruiting and, you know, we look forward to reporting in the next few years. But I think at the moment, uh, you know, our, our, our practice is, is certainly um, one where we, we would assess each patient's individual risk in those elderly patients. And if we deem that the benefit of angiography is going to outweigh the risk, then we'll proceed with it and treat them as if they were, did belong to the study population. But, you know, um, I think this is an area which we're, we're going to get more evidence in the years to come. Thank you. So at the beginning, you talked about the changes in the guidelines and you also touched about antiplatelet therapy and duration of dual antiplatelet therapy in patients with an acute coronary syndrome. As you said before, the guidelines recommend good assessment of both the bleeding and also the thrombotic risk in patients on that to really help guide duration. And what, what do you use to consider this in clinical practice? Yeah, um, so, I mean, the ESC guidelines, as you mentioned, we have to balance up the ischemic versus the bleeding risk when choosing between antiplatelets and their duration of therapy. It's anything from 12 months dialing down if they've got a high bleeding risk or dialing up um, to two years if they've got a higher ischemic risk. Um, I have to say our usual default at the moment is six months in our hospital, but really that depends on um, what we think the greatest risk to the patient is. So, from a procedural aspect, if we're putting in a lot of metal work, if the patient's had an NSTEMI and they get a long length of stent or they have overlapping stents or they've got stents in a very proximal artery, such as the proximal LAD or the left main, where stent thrombosis would you know, potentially be fatal to them, um, we would probably err on the side of a higher ischemic risk, therefore give a longer duration of antiplatelet therapy and probably more potent antiplatelet therapy. So this patient would get, you know, say it was a left main stent, this patient would get Prazogrel um, plus aspirin for a year, just as an example, if they didn't have any bleeding risks. On the sort of other hand, if the patient had a distal stent and it's in a branch off the LAD or the circumflex, previously had bleeding ulcer or uh, brain hemorrhage in the past, um, or recent stroke, then we wouldn't be so aggressive with the anti-ischemic therapy. They may have dual antiplatelet therapy, which would probably be dialed down from a year to maybe three months, um, and in some cases even a month, and then just go go with a single antiplatelet thereafter to reduce their bleeding risk. And what about people with um, atrial fibrillation and acute coronary syndrome who undergo ever percutaneous coronary intervention? Yeah. So what this, do we do with the triple therapy? That's right. Um, so, I mean, 
AF's you know very common in, in that population with coronary disease. Uh, so triple therapy in the form of platelets and a, a NOAC is, is currently recommended by the ASC for a period of really one week following PCI for NSTEMI and those with, with AF who have an indication for, for anticoagulation. So they have to have um, a chastity vascular or a one if it's a man and two if it's a woman. Um, you can increase triple therapy up to a month if they've got particularly high ischemic risk, um, but a week is certainly what the ESC recommend. Um, following triple therapy, the general strategy would be your NOAC with a single antiplatelet, which is usually clopidogrel, up to a period of 12 months, following which you may discontinue the antiplatelet and continue with the NOAC only. So we talked, we touched about treatment quite in detail uh, and just wanted to ask you over the next few minutes to really summarise for us uh, the assessment of risk factors for cardiovascular disease and what should be a standard panel of screening tests and observations that patients who come in with a STEMI or an NSTEMI should have. I mean, if we, if we go for, if we talk about modifiable risk factors and lifestyle we can do that very very quickly i mean clearly smoking cessation is key and uh, you know i think the patient should be told that actually if they are a smoker their prognosis is actually better than their non-smoking peers as they've got a modifiable risk factor obesity again is a huge risk factor difficult to ta- tackle but attempts should be made um to, uh, with for weight loss um Exercise, another thing that we advise cardiac rehab is actually, you know, there's lots of RCT evidence to support cardiac rehab. And we suggest at least 30 minutes exercise up to about five times a week. And, you know, we've we've got a mortality benefit from RCTs supporting that. Moderation of alcohol, less than 14 units per week. These are all lifestyle things. In terms of panels of tests, glucose is absolutely um, paramount to check their serum glucose when they're in. If it's in a gray zone, you should check an HbA1c or do a, a fasting blood glucose to make sure they don't have diabetes. And then if they do refer on appropriately, lipid um, profile should always be checked in, in any patient who's had um, who's got known coronary disease. Um, and we should target the appropriate levels with their lipids. So ESC guidance for secondary prevention is target the uh, LDL to below 1.8 millimoles per liter. If your statin therapy is not getting there, then you need to add in an adjunct that may be azetamide um, or occasionally PCSK9. Also ask about family history. You want to know if it's a young patient, they may have um, heterozygous or homozygous FH in the fa- family. They should, these patients are really, really important to get to get uh, on top of with, with respect to their cholesterol levels. Is performing PCI and coronary intervention is really only putting a plaster on a cut. You know, we need to affect the disease process, the things which drive the disease. And a lot of that is our behavior, but some of that's our genetics too. Um, so, you know, these are the things that I would, I would check whilst the patient is an inpatient. And certainly when they come back to the clinic, once the, if you like, the, the dust to settle over the acute phase, they've had their infarct, they've had their procedure. Um, often patients don't take things in when they're in hospital. So when they come back to clinic, it's really important to go over all of these modifiable risk factors, um, look at their blood pressure, weight, habits, cholesterol, sugar, and try and make sure you hit all of those recommended targets. And do you see everyone with an acute coronary syndrome back in clinic or has the, the pandemic and the experience over the past year changed the way we follow up patients? 
It certainly has changed. Um, so we used to, yeah, we used to see people usually around three months, everyone back in the clinic for those exact reasons that I just mentioned, give, give the dust time to settle after their infarct, let people come to terms with what has happened to them, how they can, how they can prevent this from happening again. They're undergoing cardiac rehab. Um, whereas now, you know, now, now we can't see them all. So a lot of the time we speak to them on the telephone. And this is, this is okay. It's better than nothing. It's not quite like being able to form a relationship with the patient and actually see them in clinic. Um, but the main things that we'll focus on is their lifestyle, whether they're able to make the changes that you know we suggested. Telling them why the changes are important because you know everybody knows that you know eating healthily and exercising is is good for you. But if you can tell someone, look, if you actually do this, we can reduce your risk by this amount of this happening again. I think that's really important. And, and from a non-lifestyle point of view, a, a lot of it's really to check what drugs they're on um, in clinic and whether they're clear on why they're taking the drugs. The patient doesn't know why they're taking the drugs, they're less likely to take it. Um, so it'll really be duration of antiplatelet therapy, when they're due to come off their PTY12 inhibitor, and what we do with other drugs which are usually started um, in the acute um, admissions, such as an ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, and a statin. And, you know, patients don't like being on drugs. They often ask, when can I come off this one? So often there are quite difficult conversations to be had, especially with regards to statins. But, you know, the evidence is less clear with regards to other drugs such as beta blockers. Do you perform echocardiograms on all patients following an acute coronary syndrome? Um, so, so, again, guidelines suggest, the SC guidelines suggest, and I suggest that we should. Um, patients had a heart attack, they've had a major cardiac event. Um, we need to assess their LV function um, and, and that will dictate whether we give them uh, ACE in inhibition or beta blocker therapy to reduce ventricular remodeling if they've got LV dysfunction. Um, if they do have LV dysfunction, then I would advocate that they continue with ACE in inhibition and beta blockade indefinitely. If they don't have LV dysfunction, then um, the evidence is less clear about beta blockade. Clearly, if they've had arrhythmias over, over and uh, out with their acute admission, then beta blocker would still be indi indicated. But if they don't have LV dysfunction, then the guidance says after a year you can reassess, but they should probably continue with ACE inhibition as there is some antifibrotic effects and some plaque stabilization effects from ACE inhibition. Thanks very much, Dr. Andrew. So uh, we covered quite a bit about acute coronary syndromes. Uh, however, towards the end, I was hoping you can tell us the recent changes to the investigations and the workup of patients with a suspected angina or stable coronary artery disease, as there has been some, some changes. Yes, well, the, the NICE guideline for the workup of stable chest pain, um, which was previously published in 2016, has recently been changed. And that's really, it's really welcome change, actually, for clinicians, as it, it makes it certainly a little bit easier. Um, previously, we had to work out a patient who would present with chest pain, you had to work out their pretest probability. Um, of having coronary disease, and, and that was really dependent on their risk factors, um, their, so whether they smoked or not, what their age was, whether they were male or female, um, and there was a, a very large box with lots of different numbers in it, and you had to look at the age and look at the risk factors, and then that would give you a pretest probability. Based on their pretest probability, then you would either perform, um, uh, go straight to invasive coronary andrography if it was very high, discharge them if it was very low but in the middle there was lots of different um, functional tests that you could perform um, before 
you know, you'd come to a diagnosis. Now that's all changed. And that's basically now what happens is 90% of the patients who present with chest pain, which is either typical or atypical, get CT coronary angiography. Um, and that's based predominantly on the Scott Hart results, which was led by Professor Newby of Edinburgh, published the results, the five-year results um, in the New England Journal, which showed basically that um, you could reduce um, the incidence of MI and cardiovascular death at five years if you performed a CTCA when a patient was um, assessed for angina as opposed to an exercise tolerance test. It's 4,000 patients, 2,000 randomized to each arm. And what they find is in the Kaplan-Meier, the curves deviated after the uh, GP prescribed a statin once the results of the CTCA were known. So basically what happened is patients in the CTCA arm had a CTCA, found out they had plaque, GP prescribed statin, then the curves started to deviate. Um, and it, it showed basically that medical therapy um, reduced the in incidence of cardiovascular death at five years. So that's changed our practice. And I think, you know, that's easy to understand. You know, if you had a substrate for something that can kill you, such as coronary disease, you'd want to know about it and you want to treat it. If you know you could you could equate that to cancer, if you had something cancerous in your body which could kill you, you want to know about that and you want it treated. And I think we should be thinking about coronary disease um, the same way. It's very difficult to tell from an exercise tolerance test, you know, if the changes are truly ischemic, if they're a false positive, and you don't know whether coronary disease is causing it. And that's why ATTs have gone from the guidelines. And now we've got something which shows us whether a patient has plaque or not. The difficulties now arise as to whether the patient actually has chest pain due to that plaque or not, because as you know, you know, coronary disease is pretty ubiquitous, um, certainly amongst our population in Northwest Europe and those over 50. So then we have to become better at taking histories and deciding whether um, the patient's chest pain is due to the coronary disease that we've seen on a CT scan. Um, but those are really the, the main changes with respect to stable coronary disease and the work above that. Great. So on that note, um, that was a, a good message, I think, with the importance of um, history and assessment. Thank you very much for your time and for all these very helpful insights on the assessment and management of acute coronary syndrome patients. If you don't mind at the end, just to summarize, what do you think should be the, the main learning points that we discussed today? First thing to say is, look, nothing has changed with STEMI. Um, you see a STEMI refer urgently for primary PCI, load them with aspirin, uh, P2I12 inhibitor, um, and heparin. So nothing's changed there. With respect to N-STEMI, Pre-treatment with P2Y12, so clopidogrel, prasugrel, ticagrelor, is now not recommended on the guidelines um, in whom coronary anatomy is not known. So just give them aspirin, give them heparin or fondoparnox, depending on what is on your protocol. Prasugrel and ticagrelor are now the favored P2Y12 inhibitors over clopidogrel in those undergoing PCI. The duration of dual, dual antiplatelet therapy is decreasing. It's currently still recommended at 12 months, but in light of recent evidence, I can see this being dropped down to three to six months post-stenting. Patients with AF can have complicated antithrombotic regimes comprising of NOACs with DAPT for various periods of time. This is all ischemic versus bleeding risk. And just please liaise with the patient's cardiologist if unsure about duration of therapy. We know it's confusing. It's confusing to us as well. Always consider a differential of acute myocardial injury and type 2 MI in anyone with troponin elevation where it's not clear that it's a type 1 MI. 
If confirmed that it's type 2 or an acute myocardial injury, management is aimed at correcting the underlying cause. So if it's an arrhythmia, sort that out. If it's hypoxia, sort that out. If it's anemia, sort that out. As ever, lifestyle modification and prevention of further events with lipid-lowering therapy and aggressive risk factor management is the key to improving the prognosis of all these patients with coronary disease. Thank you. Thanks very much, Andrew.